emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, folks, we are thrilled to be interviewing Adam Beerer. Well, Ron, how are you holding up during the Great Suppression? Uh, yeah, American lockdown. Hanging in there, Ed, but really looking yeah. forward to talking with Adam because I thoroughly enjoyed his book, Evasive Entrepreneurs. It was a rollicking read. <laughs> rollicking read, as Deirdre McCloskey would say. Well, more on that in just a second. <laughs> but I want to quick introduce Adam. Adam is a senior research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center and the former director of telecommunications studies at the Cato Institute. He specializes in innovation, entrepreneurialism, the internet, free speech issues with a focus on public policy concerns surrounding emergent technologies. He has authored and edited several books, including his foundational book on the freedom to innovate, written in 2014, called Permissionless Innovation. And his latest book, Evasive Entrepreneurs, as you said, Ron, or Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance, so, and subtitle is how innovation improves economies and governments will be the primary but not exclusive focus of our conversation today. Welcome to the soul of enterprise, Adam Thierer. Thanks so much for having me, Ed and Ron. I really appreciate it. Well, let's jump right in. And as we mentioned to you, as we were getting started, we had our mutual friend Deirdre McClowski on last week. And I know you cite her a couple times in the book. Uh, you write uh, specifically that McCloskey reminds us that betterment and improvement and especially innovation were long seen in Europe as violations of God's will or as unsettling hearsays. So explain what your relationship is to Deirdre McCloskey and how you kind of have really furthered her work in this area. Yeah, but Deirdre is one of my great intellectual heroes, and uh, she's what I refer to as one of the great prophets of progress. She and, and many other scholars that I identify in my most recent uh, book have really paved the way for us intellectually and helped guide us in a direction of what Matt Ridley calls rational optimism and making the case for progress, um, not in a, in a, in a wild-eyed kind of Pollyanna-ish way, but rather in a, in a fact-oriented kind of reasoned and rational empirical fashion. And Deirdre's amazing histories of battles over innovation uh, throughout uh, human civilization are really astonishing to read through her three-volume trilogy. And um, it was just a, a, a great honor that every time I've been able to interact with her, and she's been an inspiration to me and inspired this book in so many ways. Yeah, she is, and she's a wonderful person in an interview, as as you, I'm sure, know, and uh, we were happy to have Ron. And really, uh, this was uh, just a happenstance that we're able to get the two of you together, schedules worked out. So I think it's really the perfect one-two punch around this. Um, before we get to your book, I, I want to jump into some more, more current events, and, and maybe this can be the springboard for how, how we are the rest of our conversation. But yesterday, uh, Donald Trump signed an executive order reclassifying social platforms as publishers and wanted to get your thoughts right on on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm hugely troubled by that. I've spent 30 years for working for five different nonprofit organizations and the whole time I've, I've covered media and communications policy in addition to emerging technology policy. And for all of this time, including my 10 years that spent at the Heritage Foundation as their very first uh, uh, telecommunications and technology policy analyst, um, I thought conservatives were fairly unified on the idea that the fairness doctrine and net neutrality were, generally speaking, bad ideas. And yet, uh, all of a sudden, um, President Trump and, and some of his allies are suggesting that we need some pretty sweeping new forms of regulation of social media and digital platforms um, in the name of fairness and non-discrimination. Um, and even using language usually reserved for pretty hardcore leftists, things like, you know, we should treat these companies as... Uh, essential facilities or public squares or public forums or applying common carriage-like notions. 
this is really, really literally out of left field. I mean, this is some pretty uh, radical stuff. So I'm extraordinarily troubled by it. And not just because it's counter to free speech, but we're talking about empowering big government and administrative agencies and bureaucracies to enforce these ideas. And at the end of the day, even if you don't care about the speech ramifications, it's anti-property rights. Telling people, private businesses, how to use their their speech platforms is essentially a taking of their private property. I, I don't see anything very conservative about that. No, not at all. And I, I'm just amazed that my conservative friends on Facebook are all of a sudden saying that what a great idea this is and how it's really long. And, 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 and I keep saying, and, and the, the argument that most of the conservative friends are making is, well, they're, they're monopolistic, not monopolies, but monopolistic, which I love that subtle shift, right? We can't say they're a monopoly, but they're just monopolistic. And, yeah. and which, which scares me, right? Because I'm like, well, even if you believe that, the way to make sure that they don't be, continue to be monopolistic is by putting government regulations in place because right. that's what will make them more monopolistic. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's really, first of all, it's kind of crazy talk to make the argument that look at all these monopolies out there. Well, if it's monopolies plural, then it's not a monopoly. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, Facebook, uh, Google, Apple, Microsoft, uh, Twitter, uh, so on and so forth. They all compete at some level. And moreover, they compete internationally. I mean, we should be proud of these companies. This is a great American success story that these companies are the envy of the world. Everybody else wants to invent their own Silicon Valley. And we're setting out to destroy ours in this country. And, you know, the, the whole secret sauce that powered that revolution, the digital revolution, was permissionless innovation. We, we gave them the green light and said, go out, innovate, do new, interesting and different things. And none of these, you know, most of these companies didn't even exist 20 years ago. I mean, hell, I was reading articles 10, 15 years ago saying, what about the MySpace monopoly? What about AOL monopoly? What about, you know, <laughs> who even pays attention to those companies anymore? And that's the great type of sort of Schumpeterian creative destruction and churn that we see in a dynamic marketplace that we should be proud of. And unfortunately, a lot of conservatives, just because they've got a beef with media and journalists, and I know they always have, but to turn big government against companies because you feel you've got some complaint, complaint or beef is really shameful, in my opinion. I'm, I'm extraordinarily troubled by this. And let's not forget that by, by eliminating sort of like liability protections for a lot of these uh, uh, digital platforms, which include a lot of small platforms, this effort becomes the most, the biggest gift to trial lawyers you could ever imagine. I mean, th these companies are going to be sued left and right once the, the government opens the floodgates to these lawsuits. So what in the world are re conservative Republicans doing favoring this? It's nuts. And and as I kept telling and, and, and pleading with them yesterday when they're coming back to me, I said, and I'm a libertarian, by the way, so I got no dog in the hunt. I'm like, there will be a D in the White House someday. You do realize this, don't you? Yeah. And indeed, Joe Biden has already advocated, you know, regulating a lot of these platforms just for different purposes or different ways. You know, everybody, everybody in the world of politics, uh, they always want this sort of Goldilocks formula with technology and media. Like they want things to be just right, not too hot, not too cold. Well, there, there's no such thing as a Goldilocks formula, right? And I mean, it's a subjective thing and everybody's got different desires and wants from platforms. Some people want unbridled free speech. Some people want very tightly controlled, you know, community spaces that are safe. You know, a platform as big as Facebook and Twitter is never going to be able to make everybody happy. If you inject Uncle Sam into this and have big government come in and just like put their boot down every time somebody's got a complaint, then you get this sort of like bland programming and platforms that we had in the broadcast radio and television era. You know, that we don't want to go back there. We've got a, a, an information cornucopia today that we should be proud of. And for gosh sakes, Donald Trump owes his presidency to these platforms. <laughs> he, he connected with people like never before, thanks to Twitter. It was a complete straight shot to the American people. You would have never gotten that same shake from broadcast media or cable television. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Adam, we are running a little behind. I want to just now launch into to some of your work. And I'm going to ask you the, this first question, hopefully set you up for the second segment with Ron. But uh, because it's really an input to the evasive entrepreneur, what is permissionless innovation? Permissionless innovation, generally speaking, is the notion that innovators should be given the green light to move forward with new and exciting ideas and uh, projects without having to first seek some sort of a permission slip from a, a bureaucrat or a legislator. It, its antithesis is known as the precautionary principle, the, the notion of essentially giving innovators and entrepreneurs a red light and saying you must always come and seek out that 
permission slip, a sort of a mother may I kind of regulatory regime. And permissionless innovation is really just another way of saying freedom. It's just another way of saying, give people the freedom to go out and engage in trial and error experimentation to find new and better ways of moving the needle on progress. Whereas the precautionary principle, it's opposite, is a way of saying like, look, go slow, don't go out there and experiment, seek somebody's permission first. And ultimately you just get a lot less innovative dynamism in an economy that's driven by that mentality versus one by permissionless innovation. Outstanding. All right. Well, we want to remind everyone that you get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes and previews to upcoming shows, as well as our archive of all 280 plus shows that we've already done. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with the author of Evasive Entrepreneurs, Adam Thier. And Adam, I, I love how you say economists, political scientists, and business theorists don't usually agree on much, but they do agree that technical, technological innovation is widely considered the main source of economic progress. And I just, what is your definition of innovation, say, versus invention? Do you have the same distinction like that Matt Ridley uses in his recent book, Why Innovation or How Innovation Works? Yeah, I generally share that perspective with Ridley and with others. There is definitely a difference between these two things. I mean, generally speaking, we can just talk about innovation as being anything that's new and different in some ways. And it doesn't always have to be commercial. A major point that I make in the book is that some of the most exciting forms of so-called evasive entrepreneurialism are forms of entrepreneurialism that are what we might refer to as household innovation or social entrepreneurialism or bottom-up non-commercial types of innovation. Um, and so uh, it, it's, it's an amazing world we live in because there's so many different types of entrepreneurs, including many that aren't necessarily always out to make money. Right. No, you point out the pothole vigilantes mm. as, as an example of free innovation. I just love that. Uh, but you're, you say your most controversial claim is that technological change itself may become the most important check on government power going forward. Right. By that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of critics of innovation today, a surprising number, even though 
most economists and business theorists and others generally agree innovation is one of the most important things in moving the, the needle in human progress and betterment. Uh, the reality is, is that innovation has a lot of critics and a lot of the academic critics today uh, essentially just don't want to see as much innovation because um, they worry how to undermine various types of social and or legal norms or institutions. And everybody has their own favorite types of policies or institutions or whatever else that they're concerned with. But primarily what they're concerned with is that somehow innovation is, quote unquote, anti-democratic that it essentially goes around policy and regulatory systems, and that it's not quote unquote governed by the people. And, and also that it undermines important government values or institutions. And, and I argue the opposite. I argue that innovation actually improves the quality of government in fundamental ways. And in fact, in an age when it's in, a lot of legislative systems are increasingly broken and functioning, uh, suffering from a lot of dysfunctionalism, Innovation helps us identify where maybe things have gotten a little bit out of whack with common sense and the consent of the governed. And therefore, I refer to innovation as sort of a new form of checks and balances, a sort of relief valve when all else goes wrong. And that's a hard thing for some people to accept at first, but it really shouldn't because it helps us recalibrate things and bring them more in line with what the public actually demands. Right. No, and I love it. And then you go even further because I, you know, most of our listeners would be familiar with obviously smartphones and cryptocurrencies, blockchain and drones and 3D printing. And you have a specific definition that are label for these things. You call them technologies of resistance and, and how they enable techno technological civil disobedience. Can you kind of explain your thinking there? Yeah, sure. Well, there's a lot of amazing sort of technological decentralization and democratization happening today. And obviously the smartphone is, is one, but not the only one of those things. I mean, there's a huge range of technologies I discussed throughout the book from um, uh, broadband systems to 3D printers, to virtual reality, to the sharing economy, to uh, various types of micro mobility, transportation revolution stuff. I mean, just the list goes on and on mobile medicine and all of these technologies, what unifies them is increasingly a sort of decentralized, democratized uh, ability to put more and more power in the hands of the people. And once people have that ability, the, the new capability to speak up or act out, they take advantage of it when, again, when things, laws, regulations get a little bit out of whack. And so that's an exciting thing for me. It, it doesn't mean that technology can't cost problems. I spend a significant amount of time in the book, as you know, in later chapters, addressing all of the beefs that people do have with technological change and innovation. But for the most part, it on net has improved our society and it has, it has resulted in more human betterment uh, because of these technologies of, uh, of resistance or, uh, or freedom. Right. I mean, you're not an anarchist. You, you, you believe there's a pragmatic approach to regulation. Absolutely. In fact, I, I state right up front in the book that if you're looking for a, a sort of a, a, a sort of a techno anarchist kind of approach to this or a crypto anarchist approach, you're you've you've got the wrong book because I I spent a lot of time talking about governance in this book. And the in the second half of my life as a as a scholar has been spent trying to find more decentralized, distributive forms of dynamic governance that don't have that sort of command and control top-down feel of past regulatory regimes, which have stifled innovation and human creativity. And instead, we need to find those bottom-up mechanisms or methods of solving hard problems without stifling the creative spirit of the people. And so we need to take serious, as, in, as defenders of innovation, we need to take serious the critics and their criticisms, but we need to challenge them and say, look, I'll meet you halfway, but you have to start by understanding we're not going to go where you want to go with a precautionary principle approach of saying thou shall not mother may I. That's not where we have the default for public policy. We start with permissionless innovation and then we have the innovators presumption as I call it in the book that innovation should be innocent until proven guilty and if they can make a compelling case while we do need some greater safeguards on certain types of innovations then we'll talk but maybe we'll find a more a less restrictive way of dealing with those governance concerns other than throwing the book at all these new innovators and uh, and entrepreneurs. 
You have another great term that I just love. And I think I first heard you say it on an interview before I read it in your book, but it's just one of those terms I know will stick with me forever. And that's regulatory entrepreneurialism, mm -hmm. where the policy change is part of their business model. And of course, everybody instantly thinks of Uber, but Airbnb, and there's probably a whole host of other examples as well. Absolutely. Re regulatory entrepreneurs are basically just evasive entrepreneurs who set out to intentionally challenge or change the law through their innovative activities. They essentially make policy change part of their business model. And as you, as you mentioned, the sort of paradigmatic example of this would be uh, the sharing economy and specifically ride sharing with uh, services like Lyft and Uber. I, it's a story I tell at length in the book. I mean, Uber's had its share of problems for sure, and they're not a perfect company. But think about the fact that for the better part of about 70 years, economists and political scientists and lawyers and even governments themselves uh, had argued that a lot of municipal taxicab regulations were essentially an anti-consumer racket. You know, you had local taxicab licensing bodies in bed with taxicab companies. And the result was higher prices, lower quality, uh, and less quantity. And those are the key variables on which we should judge the effectiveness of public interest regulation. Well, in this case, regulation completely failed the public interest. And for 70 years, we had concrete proof that that was the case, and nothing ever changed until 2010. And along came Uber, and then very quickly Lyft, and some other competitors, and the whole thing changed overnight. We got a taste of true choice and competition, and now we're not going back, right? And the great thing about that story is it's not that it resulted in zero regulation of, of the sector. We still have regulation of Uber and Lyft, as we should. But the difference is we have opened the market to competition and choice because the political dynamic or discussion changed precisely because of evasive entrepreneurialism and technologies of freedom that it gave every consumer the ability in their hands to instantly order a car wherever they were at in an urban area. We weren't going to give that up. We're not going to, you know, not, somebody's not going to take away that from us easily. We've got control now. And that's a game changer. It is. And, and it illustrates two other concepts that you define really well, which is the pacing problem and the compliance paradox. Can you explain those two? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the pacing problem is a real crucial uh, factor in why evasive entrepreneurialism is on the rise. Basically, the, the, the pacing problem is a term that generally refers to the inability of legal or regulatory regimes to keep up with the intensifying pace of technological change. Technologies tend to evolve linearly, sometimes even exponentially, but public policy evolves incrementally, if that at all. It evolves very slowly. And the problem for policy and regulation is that that gap is widening. Technology is only moving faster, and it's moving faster in just about every field. And so the problem for regulators is they face a choice at that moment. They have to figure out, do we double down on the, on the regulation and the sort of mother may I permission-based slip, uh, uh, permission slip-based systems of the past? If they do, then they're going to face, as you noted, the compliance paradox, which is that if you do double down, you might end up just having more unwanted behavior or more legal evasion or problems in, uh, for enforcement. And so they would be better off trying to find a more flexible type of government's arrangement um, that would accommodate innovation, but also address some of the concerns about it. And I argue that because the pacing problem is only gonna intensify and because regulators understand the compliance paradox is very, very real, I think and hope, and this is why I'm optimistic, that we're going to see the door open for more permissionless innovation going forward. Um, I just hope that's the case. I hope I'm not wrong about that. <laughs> and you say that even in light of the COVID crisis. Well, in fact, the COVID crisis is proof positive in some ways because look what happened following the, uh, the outbreak. Almost immediately, governments at the federal, state, and local level started shedding rules and regulations left and right. Uh, Americans for Tax Reform keeps a running list of all the regulations that have been sunset or paused in the wake of the COVID outbreak. And I think around 500 or so, they, they just stopped counting. I, maybe they're still trying to count, but there's been so many rules that have been uh, suspended. In fact, I've got a big new paper out with my colleagues at the Mercatus Center called uh, Making the Case for a So-Called Fresh Start Initiative that basically says we had to bundle together most of these laws and regulations that have been paused in the wake of the outbreak. And we ought to just have a thumbs up or thumbs down vote on them because policymakers, after all, were the ones who said we need to deregulate. Right. These laws are not serving the public interest. They're undermining public health. And so we've now been given powerful ammunition by policymakers themselves 
that regulatory accumulation resulted in less efficient, less uh, beneficial types of public health outcomes. And another distinction you make that I love is technologies born free or born captive. And I think one interview interviewer on a podcast asked you about drone burritos. You know, you want to drone <laughs> burritos. I don't care about that, Adam. Will we get supersonic planes? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question because I really think that's an area where we do desperately need more innovation. You think about four big sectors of the economy where we most need to move the needle on progress, housing, healthcare, energy, transportation. These sectors are characterized by really heavy handed regulation a lot of precautionary approaches. And of course, public safety is very crucial to all of those sectors. But the problem is, is that we've held back really important types of innovations and some of our best and brightest innovators have flocked to other sectors or other countries because of it. They've engaged in what I talk about in the book as regulatory, uh, or I'm sorry, innovation arbitrage. But the reason that we have this problem uh, is because of those heavy handed rules in those sectors. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of new technologies are coming in collision with those sectors and specifically digital technologies. And those technologies were lucky enough to be, as I say in the book, born free. The internet, smartphones, digital platforms, so on and so forth. These were light touch regulatory regimes, if any regulations at all governing those things. And they're increasingly creeping into those heavily regulated sectors that are, as I call it in the book, born into regulatory captivity. This is a sector where like for transportation, if you wanna do something like supersonic, you've gotta get endless numbers of permits to get off the ground. But even something like drones, including burrito drones, you have to get a lot of permission slips at the federal and potentially even state or local level. So we, we have this collision of these worldviews, these regulatory paradigms, the born free technologies and sectors versus the born in captivity technologies and sectors. And that is the most interesting governance challenge of our time for emerging technology, which is that do we end up trying to, to pigeonhole exciting new technologies like driverless cars and drones and things like that into old regulatory regimes for aircraft from the 50s or you know cars from the 70s? That's going to kill innovation opportunities and lead to more innovation arbitrage. In fact, it already has, both domestically and internationally, as I document in the book. So this is the crucial distinction, I think, going forward for whether or not we're going to move the needle on progress in those sectors. It's fantastic. Well, unfortunately, Adam, this is flying by. We're up against our next break. And folks, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at barrisage.com. Check out thesoulofenterprise.com for full show notes with our interview with Adam and where you can get his book, Evasive Entrepreneurs. And now a word from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
And we are talking with Adam Thierer and his book, Evasive Entrepreneurs the Fut- and the Future of Governance, How Innovation Improves Economies and Governments. Uh, I, I just want to ask you, Adam, about that, uh, pick up on something that you were talking about with, with uh, Ron. Um, let me see if I can phrase this question right. Do you think that we in the United States have, in a way, overscaled democracy in trying to apply democracy to too many people under the same uh, place? And in other words, w- would we be better off seeing clearly more federalism, but maybe even uh, further things down to the more local levels, more that, that like Thomas Jefferson in, envisioned with the, down even to the ward level? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd personally like to see that. I will say that a lot of my colleagues, a lot of friends I've argued with through the years uh, have seen things differently. They look at federalism and a, and a lot of state and local uh, you know, borders is just nothing but restraints on trade. And you, know, you ask an economist about that and they'll say it's inefficient. But the reality is, is that federalism, at least into the, our constitutional fabric, is supposed to provide us with another type of relief valve to allow for greater experimentation. This was the topic of the first of my 10 books back in 1998 that I wrote. It's called The Delicate Balance, Federalism, Interstate Commerce, and Technological Freedom, or in the technological age, rather. And in that book, I really struggled openly with this question that you're asking, Ed, which is is an excellent one, because so many of the technologies that I love and try to defend the freedom to innovate and permissionless innovation are confronted with so many different rules and regulations, not just at the federal level, but also at the state and local, and then, of course, international and so I don't know if there's an easy, optimal answer always and everywhere to this. Um, the drone example is a perfect one. Some people would say, well, we should have one simple set of rules for drones at the federal level, to which I say, well, good luck. You got the FAA that says you can't fly a drone almost anywhere. And so all the innovations going over to Australia and the UK and other countries. We only just recently last week uh, made it allowable, made it permissible for a company to deliver medical supplies uh, via a drone, that's been happening for a couple of years in sub-Saharan Africa and in, in Pacific, uh, remote Pacific islands. Why not here in remote areas? It's a perfect country to do remotely. Well, the answer is the FAA doesn't allow it. So there's a bill by Senator Mike Lee um, that some of my colleagues have written on that would allow drone deliveries to be delegated to the state or local level and let them come up with their own policies because what's good maybe for Wyoming is one thing versus what's good for, say, Manhattan where I can imagine we need strict rules, right? But in the middle of Wyoming, I mean, we, why, have one set of, why, why have one set of rules? Let a thousand flowers bloom. So federalism can have great advantages, but it also can certainly have some trade-offs and costs, and you have to figure out how much of that you can tolerate. Yeah, I, I think you're missing something here, though, because I don't think the drones are going to be necessary because with the advent of everybody homeschooling now, all of the public schools are going to be turned into local Amazon distribution centers. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Well, Amazon did buy Whole Foods for a reason. I mean, they can turn their grocery store network into drone delivery pads, as they hopefully are about to do here in Arlington, Virginia. But we're waiting to see if they get the permits. So exciting yeah. times. No, that, that would be great. I um, wanted to ask you about uh, permissionless innovation in China. And this is a thought that I had as I was reading your book. Would you say that probably more permissionless innovation goes on in China, but less evasive entrepreneurship? I don't know about that. That's it's it's hard to know. And you know, I study China as, as closely as I can, but we have a real serious question of how much we can believe with official state data and and the other anecdotal reports we hear. We do know this. We do know that the the Chinese were remarkable innovative people and that and that country has made amazing strides in terms of providing world-class technologies and, and companies. Uh, of course, it's also true that the state has directed a lot of that and has exercised tight control over much of it. They've really acted to create so-called state champions. And they've got a very heavy-handed industrial policy approach to these things. I'm writing a big paper on this right now about how the Chinese are approaching AI. And they've got all sorts of like four-year plans, five-year plans, 10-year plans. Um, And usually these kind of things didn't work in the Soviet Union and other communist countries. But in China, it's really interesting because the state sort of sets the direction and gives a lot of heavy-handed steering or recommendations and clearly infiltrates the company with its own people, including maybe spies. But at the same time, the state then takes its hands off and say, no, go do interesting things. Go interact with people, but always come back to us and report. And needless to say, we're uncomfortable with that, right? I mean, that's not the model for us in America. Um, There are a lot of people, unfortunately, in America who are saying, like, we've got to meet the Chinese challenge. We need more of that kind of industrial policy. And I'm like, nah, no thanks. No thanks. Because at some point, I think that model does break down. And at some point, I think you see a lot of other people in the world respond to it, as you're seeing right now, uh, the question of, like, is there state-sanctioned spying? 
with a lot of those companies. So um, the question about permissionless innovation in China is a tricky one for that reason. Whether or not there's evasive entrepreneurialism, of course there is. There's evasive entrepreneurialism everywhere. And China's a huge country with a lot of people. But I think the state obviously is willing to exert a lot more control in terms of cracking down on types of evasive entrepreneurialism that they do not approve of. It's really just a question of what type, because when Chinese companies are invaded in industrial espionage versus American companies, the Chinese state's probably like, go for it, man, bring back those industrial secrets. But when they're doing something domestically to sort of skirt state uh, uh, directives, uh, they probably are not tolerating nearly as much of that evasiveness. And I want to ask, are you, are you familiar with some of the work of George Gilder? Absolutely, I am. I've known George for many, many years. He was one of my uh, great heroes. All right, great. Well, he's he's been a guest on, on the show as well a couple of times. And last time we had him on, right after he, he wrote the article that I, I think appeared in AERI first, and that is the Huawei test. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, wondering, is, is, is that, what were your thoughts on that article you know, in, in which he posits that, yes, the, the Chinese government is, is a problem, but Huawei itself is really very much independent? You know, I'm going to I'm going to I have to admit that I'm always a little bit nervous about commenting on the Huawei situation. I don't know if we have all the facts about Huawei mm. and a lot of these state actors. I, I, I want to believe that they are free of that kind of meddling and that they're not infested with spies and others. But I do know enough from talking to high level people at American tech companies that this is a serious problem and our government officials are concerned about it. Um, I, I don't know if I can make a definitive statement on that. And you may notice that in my very lengthy 370 page book, I steered well clear of that question. <laughs> Which is why I asked it yeah. of you. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a hard, hard question, Ed. And I, I just have to admit, like, I'm not sure I'm ready to come up with a definitive answer to it. Yeah, no, it, it, it is clearly a difficult situation. And, and Ron and I were also monitoring the situation in, in Hong Kong pretty well yep. with regard to what's going on there. And Man, there's just a lot of boiling things that are boiling. Uh, so let's let's hope that your all, all of our optimism remains true. Yeah. Um, I only got a couple more minutes with you, and I, I did want to ask. And you did did mention that you, hey, you're not a, a, a crypto anarchist, but what what are your thoughts long term on uh, Bitcoin and blockchain? And understanding that they're two separate things, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the plom- promise of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, and more specifically, more generally, rather, uh, uh, you know, blockchain based uh, services is really exciting. I mean, this is another example of technological decentralization and the power of it, because it's really empowered a whole host of individuals and institutions to come up with exciting new types of uh, services. Now, whether or not those services scale up is I think the question that a lot, some of us are skeptical about. I'll I'll be honest with you, I mean, back in the nineties, I was very, very gung-ho about the empowering nature of encryption technology. And I was one of these guys that said, once that we beat the government's efforts back to regulate encryption, that was it. We had our privacy with no more surveillance. Encryption changed everything, you know, down with the state. Well, geez, right? I, I was completely wrong. And I was a little too enthusiastic. And it was a, it was a powerful life lesson for me that we always, we should never underestimate the power of the state I, I like to use the Star Wars analogy where I talk about there's these moments, these Star Wars moments, right? The, the rebel, the new hopes are the rebels and new technologies come in and challenge the state. And I talk about this in chapter five of my book. And then we have the Empire Strikes Back moments. And you're like, whoa, they just did an end run around, you know, encryption and did these back doors and surveilled us in different ways. Or they, they forced companies to hand over uh, secrets about us or information about us. But the really interesting question is what's the return of the Jedi moment? And where do we find some new balance? And is it a happy balance or is it still a suboptimal one? And with something like encryption technologies, which have done wonders to empower people and make online communications and commerce more secure, we do know they did not perfectly protect our privacy versus the state, that we still have a lot of state surveillance and a lot of snooping. And hopefully cryptocurrencies are able and, and blockchain technologies are able to help add another layer to sort of technologies of freedom that can help protect our privacy and our commerce and our speech. But I now have that caveat in the back of my mind, like, boy, I underestimated the state before. I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, I, I like to make the joke about Star Wars, though, that, you know, they, they were able to figure out interstellar tr- travel, but but Luke still has to go to a bar to find the, the ride. In other words, they didn't have Uber. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yep. Um, Last question. I only have about uh, a minute or so with you. 
what about application of these technologies with regard to voting? Are we mm-hmm. going to be able to, to, to then get, get to a point where, because I mean, the big thing right now is this whole mail, mail-in mail voting that everybody's up in arms about. But hey, I want to vote on my phone. That's what mm-hmm. I want to do. <laughs> right. I think we're way off. I think we're still a ways off that. I mean, there's still a lot of security issues there. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people do want to have more flexible, easy voting. But then again, this has become such a political hot potato now that for no other reason we won't because of that, because an entire, essentially an entire party has been turned by the president against the idea of sort of any type of innovation in voting. And um, I think that challenge remains. And there's a lot of people on the left of center who are security experts who are skeptical of it just for technological reasons, which I think are, are more legitimate because they have shown proof of concept for how you can hack uh, uh, electronic voting systems. No voting system's perfect. I think ours has a long way to go to be better and, you know, I, I, the one thing I will say, I don't know what the right answer is to that question, but I do know this, that not everything should be subjected to a vote. To circle back to your earlier question about, you know, mm. democracy and like, you know, not every innovation or every question about technological change should be subjected to like, do you think it's okay or not okay that we have Uber and Lyft? You know, if we would have asked that in 2010, people would have said no. But it was only because we allowed proof of concept and allowed them to go out and try new and different things that we got the innovations we enjoy today. And now, of course, we would, we would answer that question properly. Like, absolutely, we want these things. We mm-hmm. want these choices. So I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very down on the idea of like democratic processes in the form of like everything has to get a thumbs up or thumbs down by the electorate before we allow it. That's, <laughs> that's a recipe for real trouble. Sure, sure. Well, Adam, this has been great with you. I'm going to let Ron take you the rest of the way home in the last segment, but want to remind our listeners that the place to go for our Patreon version of this podcast is patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can listen to the show commercial free, as well as our bonus episodes, which we record immediately after the regular show. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about evasive entrepreneurs with Adam Thierer. And Adam, another thing I learned from your book was that Benjamin Franklin had proposed on the great seal of the United States, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, which (laughs) I thought that was great. But, you know, you also cite Charles Murray's 2016 book, By the People, where he kind of says, avoid regulations, and, and you don't take that full approach. But you also point out, and this is hard to swallow as libertarians or even conservatives, 
that the last time a federal agency has been abolished was in 1985 with the Civil Aeronautics Board and then the ICC about a decade later. How would you reform the FDA today? Yeah, well, there's a lot of reforms needed at many different levels and layers of the federal government and the state governments for that matter, but I, I spend most of my time focused on federal law. And uh, I think it's really, really crucial that we try to encourage these agencies to turn the corner towards giving the green light to more innovations. And the question is, do we want to spend a lot of time, and a lot of libertarians and conservatives have, trying to just go on a head-on, like, let's abolish this agency uh, approach? And I've been there too. I mean, I, uh, a book I wrote in the early 90s, uh, in the mid-90s, was about how to dismantle the Federal Communications Commission. And honestly, I think we still probably could get rid of the FCC, although there's some spectrum issues. Um, but then there's a lot of other agencies that are a lot harder to make that case. The FDA, the FAA, there still are some safety regulations that they enforce that are pretty important. Um, but regardless of what I think about that, realistically, they're just not going to be abolished. You have to have a backup plan. You have to have a second best scenario. And a lot of what I do in the book is just start from the presumption that we're not going to be able to comprehensively reform these agencies, and we're certainly not going to be able to abolish them. If that's the case, what's the next best alternative? So I talk about a number of things in the book. I won't have time to go through all of them today, but I, I think I already mentioned the idea of the innovator's presumption, which I would like to see it written into every single code that involves technology policy in, in every, uh, whether it's existing or coming. The idea that basically, again, innovators are innovator, uh, in, in, uh, innocent until proven guilty, that the burden of proof for stopping a new innovation lies with its opponents and specifically with the agency that would restrict it. And they have to do this according to a set a body of evidence and there has to be a compelling argument. And then we have to come up with a better standard of harm. It can't just be some willy nilly thing like, oh, this new technology, it makes me uncomfortable. No, sorry, not good enough. You know, come up with a theory of harm that says, no, this new technology is going to kill me. Like I can have a conversation about why we need to have limitations on killer robots, killer autonomous robots. We absolutely need regulations of those things. Um, of course, mostly governments be using those anyway. Um, but drones, drones are a good example. I, I want a lot more drone freedom, but I do think we do need some guidelines about how drones operate. And we need to come up with some rules about where they can go and can't go. Uh, if we want to see uh, that innovation spread. So I, I think that um, that's a crucial part of it. I think the other part of it that we need for these agencies to do is we need to understand we need to engage with them. And I, I know this is going to be uncomfortable for some libertarians, but I've spent a lot of time writing, including in my last law review, about the idea of soft law. Um, we need the agencies to be more adaptive, more flexible, more willing to have a conversation about sort of best practices or guidelines for innovation as opposed to hard clad rules that say thou shall not. And some conservatives and libertarians say, oh, no, 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 that's going to be an open invitation to abuse to a power. Look, I've written about that too, and I'm concerned about that. But here's the good news. Because of the pacing problem we identified earlier, because of evasive entrepreneurialism, as we've been discussing, because of technologies of decontrol and resistance and freedom, we now have new checks on these agencies we can have a better discussion than we did in the past and get more of an opening for permissionless innovation. Not a perfect one, but a better conversation and more political leverage. It will sometimes backfire as it did with 23andMe and some other companies, but in a great number of other cases, we're having discussions these days with these agencies that are leading to more innovation opportunities than we had in the past. Not perfectly so, but I'm, I'm actually kind of optimistic that we're starting to see some change in this regard, but maybe I'm a fool. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're not a fool. That's good to hear. Another really uncomfortable thought in your book, which comes from Tyler Cowen, who's also been a guest on the show. He pointed out that modern technology, especially communications, transportation, has greatly facilitated the growth of government in the 20th century. Is that inevitable, though? I think that that's a problem that Tyler identified in an important paper. I highlight chapter five of the book, um, uh, which is on innovation as checks and balances. And I discussed the question of, well, you know, to what degree does technology empower us and limit the, the powers of the state? Or does it do the opposite? Does it empower the state and limit our liberties? And the answer is it depends. And what Tyler pointed out in his, his paper on this is that 
the greatest thing that facilitated state power in the 20th century was the rise of massive communications and transportation networks. And that's just empirically a fact. That's just true. There's no denying that. There's no way our governments could have taxed us or regulated us the way they did without modern communications and transportation technologies. Now, that being said, there have been a number of other technologies and innovations which have freed us up in other ways. Those transportation technologies that empowered the state also empowered us in new ways to go and do different things that we couldn't do before. Modern communications technologies, specifically digital technologies, have given us the ability to overcome censorship like never before in history. Uh, I had a book that I actually threw away a couple of years ago, I was halfway done with, uh, called The End of Censorship, where I basically said censorship is, is largely a, a done deal, at least as traditionally defined. It doesn't mean policymakers won't continue to try, but we've been empowered by these technologies to the point where it's very, very hard for them to put the genie back in the bottle. That chapter of mine is something I really struggled with and I spent a lot of time on. I, I, I hope your listeners will read it because it's, it's an interesting and exciting exploration of all the different viewpoints from scholars, specifically libertarian scholars, but not exclusively on that question. And I can sound a little mushy on this at times. It's a, it's a, I talk about it as a form of a dance, like a give and take, a back and forth. But I really believe these new technologies that are with us today are finally giving us more of a voice and more exit opportunities to sort of exit systems or evade them when we find them uh, just not in line with common sense. All right, Adam, we got less than a minute, but one quick question. Would you reform IP law, maybe like specifically patents? Oh, oh my. You asked that question last with a minute to go. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's the single most controversial question among libertarians I've ever, I've ever encountered. I wrote mm -hmm. in uh, the, I think the third or fourth of my books uh, was, was on this question. It was called Copy Fights. And um, it became so controversial because I had this mushy, moderate kind of approach to copyright and patent law that was sort of right in the middle of everybody else that it did nothing but make enemies. I had people that wouldn't talk to me anymore because they were so holier than thou about IP, either totally pro or totally anti. It is just the most highly charged issue among lovers of freedom that I've ever encountered. And I I would personally, yes, we do need to reform copyright law and patents. It has gotten a bit out of control. I saw a new article last night about the idea of plating, like you could arrange food on a plate in a certain way and then copyright it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I used to arrange my peas and carrots to make frowning faces. Should I have been collecting royalties since I was a kid? I mean, that's the insanity of copyright. Plus these terms that are like life of the author plus like 80 years, you can't incentivize a corpse to be any more creative. Why are we still giving Disney royalty for Mickey Mouse? That's insanity. That being said, I don't believe in abolishing copyright or patents altogether. They still serve an important role, but we need to go back to the founder's vision of copyright and patents, which was far more cabined and limited as it should be still today. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Adam. This has been wonderful and, and best wishes with the book. I hope everybody reads it and good luck on the tour. And Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to talk about creative destruction. Excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us on our website at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you 